All right, so welcome to today's Muse Tech interview. I am Alicia Lampley here today with Dr. Mike Murawski. Um, he is an author, consultant, um, the former director of learning and community partnerships at the Portland Art Museum and a self-described nature lover as well. So I'm really happy to be having this conversation and um, I just wanted to have you also introduce yourself. Yeah, sure. Well, it's great to be speaking with you. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've worked in in museums for about 15 years, primarily in museum education um, and really have gotten um, really interested this last, you know, maybe, you know, five to five to 10 years in, you know, community partnerships work and really changing organizational change work. Like how do we change museums? Um, and then like most recently, um, it's been just, you know, kind of amazing to work with Latanya Autry on the Museums Are Not Neutral project, um, as well as having worked on Art Museum Teaching, which is an online museum education blog um, that's been going for 10 years now. I can't even believe it's <clears throat> coming on 10 years now. So um, yeah, and now I'm working as a consultant um, and also uh, a few years back co-founded, you mentioned that I was a nature lover. Uh, a few years back, my wife and I co-founded uh, Super Nature Adventures, which is a place-based learning um, business that really focuses on, um, you know, working with uh, kids and families in the outdoors and working with a lot of nonprofits, government agencies to do place-based learning projects. So yeah, we always have these winding pathways that we go down. <laughs> That's actually really interesting that you mentioned that. Um, I read about um, your, I read, well, I read about that and then I read something else. I think you'd written on, on museum teaching. I'm not sure where I found it, but um, it was just interesting that you mentioned um, place-based learning and education with environmental learning. Cause I started, I think I took on an opportunity with a program um, that's happening this summer. So I will also be teaching environmental um, awareness and studies in Baltimore uh, virtually. So I was like, oh, this is perfect. Okay, anyway, that's yeah. completely off topic. But um, yes, is there anything else you wanted to say before I moved on? I'm sorry. Oh, go for it. Yeah, let's dive right in. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So um, I just wanted to sort of become more familiar with your background. Um, as far as your work with object stories, um, how did you first get into that? And what was the process sort of briefly of the implementation of it overall? Yeah, so I got involved in object stories. It, um, it launched at the Portland Art Museum, I wanna say around uh, 2010. I think they were probably working on it for you know, a good year prior to launch because um, it was a really significant project, had some you know, foundation support, grant support um, to kind of get the you know, to get the initial really like storytelling booth project launched. Um, and then in 2012, uh, so it was kind of like StoryCorps. The idea, the original idea was really to, um, uh, Tina Olson, who was director of education at the Portland Art Museum when it launched um, and her team really wanted to start just connecting more with, with visitors, but just with broader audiences. And this was really a big, at the, the initial spark was an attempt to connect people with objects in the museum, but also in their own lives. So this idea that objects have stories 
Um, and so it was, it was started with just come in, tell the story of, you know, this teacup you have, or this teddy bear, or, and then just see the museum as a place where we can think about stories. It was just making that bridge and making that connection and starting to make people feel more comfortable, not necessarily around like, you know, collection objects, but how do we start that bridge and that connection by just thinking about our own objects that are important to our lives. And then maybe we start to see objects that are on view at the museum as having stories as well. Um, and you can start to make that you know, connection. So that's kind of where it started. I came in and, in 2012 um, when Tina Olson um, left that position and went on uh, to a different position. Uh, and so I came in as director of education in 2012, uh, was really interested in the object stories project, which is one of the things that kind of attracted me to coming to Portland because it was just starting to to you know, make one of these cracks in the foundation of museum interpretation and authority and kind of who gets to decide, you know, who tells the stories about what objects. And so, um, yeah, so that's kind of where uh, my involvement got started. Oh, I love that, um, especially because I feel like it really started that whole process of sort of meeting people where they were, even if they weren't um, involved with museums at all and kind of like slow walking them back to the collection. Um, I don't know, I think that's just really uh, innovative. But um, at the time, you know, around when you got started with Object Stories, what would you say the uh, museum climate was in terms of public outreach and community engagement, education? Um, I don't know yeah. if you witnessed a lot of that going on before this project. Well, you know, that's a really interesting question because I think, you know, certainly there was, <clears throat> there were, examples of that happening in museums. And this wasn't that long ago, but I feel like really we were sort of scanning the field to look at, you know, storytelling in museums and this type of kind of community-centered storytelling. And, and it wasn't happening a lot. And I know Object Stories has been, you know, pointed to as, you know, a really influential project early on, especially in art museums. I, you know, I think history museums, you know, we, we went to several museums that weren't specifically art museums to kind of look at, you know, how were other museums doing it? We went to the Oakland Museum, you know, in California, which is not specifically an art museum. It has, you know, science and natural history collections and history. And, um, and we went to some other institutions that were just sort of doing storytelling projects, um, but art museums weren't really dipping into this quite yet. So we were um, a little early in that. And I think at the same time, art museums especially, but still a lot of museums were thinking of this idea of, of um, community outreach still around public programs and kind of audiences instead of like, you know, how do we just break out of this, you know, rut that we're in, in terms of who we're reaching and who we're not reaching and who gets to be involved in making these decisions and, and who has never been involved in, in, you know, programming and interpretation and meaning making. And so it was an early project where we were just trying to really, you know, push the envelope a little bit more on that. In thinking about that um, kind of shared authority, I guess you'd say, um, did you, can you think of any like specific point at the museum where they were like, okay, we're gonna go ahead with this um, in the direction of, I don't wanna say object story specifically, but like we're going to really uh, put a project in motion like now, like it's- Yeah. Just um, you know, I. I really think a lot of times with this kind of work in museums, there isn't necessarily always a turning point. It's kind of, you know, when the, when the object stories got started, <clears throat> it was definitely an initiative from, 
educate from the education department of the Portland Art Museum mm-hmm. that it just pushed ahead. I mean, I, a lot of people, and I always think of this too, that refer to Tina Olson as kind of a bull in a china shop. Yes. Um, you know, it took a lot to even just yank some gallery space away from, you know, collection display and curatorial practice, you know, and from that department, it was the first time, you know, and I think it was very significant and symbolic that education got a gallery space that it could use for storytelling around objects that were not part of the museum's collection. <laughs> it was a big, you know, a big push. And I think a lot of people scratched their heads. And I think even even would continue to scratch their heads to this day as to why a gallery space gets to be used for anything other than displaying objects from the collection. So I think that was a, um, but I don't know that, I don't know if we could ever identify a turning point that where the institution sort of was like, okay, like we're going to do this. Um, I think it, I think it did spread though. I think the objects, you know, object story started out with a lot of enemies um, and a lot of people that just didn't understand why we were doing it, but we just had such a great strong team and the ideas and the community partners were so strong and the, you know, audience and, and sort of, you know, visitor engagement was strong. We just kept growing it. Um, and then we started working with, you know, you know, a lot of community partners. We started working with curators and partnering with curators on, you know, a whole series of object stories projects. And then all of a sudden it started going into the other gallery spaces. It started entering into, right away in 2012 when I arrived, we even pushed object stories into a special exhibition uh, of Carrie Mae Weems. And we had a local school in Portland telling stories about uh, their own family photographs in association with a, with an amazing series of, of photographs that Carrie Mae Weems has called called family pictures and stories. So it was this really nice way for object stories to start entering itself into exhibition galleries, permanent collection galleries. Um, and I think it was just working with individual curators who started to understand the power this project had rather than any like institutional turning point, if that makes sense. Right, right. And it's really the power of education and how it just seeps into everything down to participation and onward. And I think, I don't know, it's, that's an ongoing battle, I find. Like, the more I learn, um, there's this thing where, I don't know, I guess education in museums, it's its better. It's a lot better today, but it's taken a backseat, typically, um, to the collection and curatorial space. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's really cool though. Um, turning individuals and getting community partners on board, I think presented like an undeniable, like I don't want to say fever for it, but um, interest in it as a project. So that's cool. Um, so I do know that in 2013, um, Pam partnered with the Naya Family Center's Early College Academy. Um, really quickly, that's the Native American. Um, Oh, shoot. Oh, Native American Youth and Family Association. Yeah. Yes, the Youth and Family Association. Um, They were having Native students participate in object stories um, in relation to the permanent Native American collection. Um, With those stories, um, working to offer alternative perspectives on Native art in the collection, you know, bridging that gap between past and present. um, Did you? Did you find that it worked to challenge those notions of collaboration even further with object stories? Like you talked about um, moving 
moving object stories into more gallery space and into special exhibitioning and into more of that curatorial um, area of museum operations. Did that work to sort of push that further? Yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm glad you brought this project up because I actually just presented about it recently at a, a workshop over in Germany um, because it, it was kind of one of these initial catalysts and I think a big shifting point in the object stories project too, but also just in kind of the work we were doing, you know, in, in education at the Portland Art Museum. Um, yeah, so we were partnering with, with indigenous youth to really tell stories and, and provide meaning around and create meaning around objects in our Native American collection. And it was one of the early object stories like exhibitions. We had object stories that the gallery itself started out as kind of a storytelling booth. And then we had, you know, some, you know, graphics and, um, and then there were these like digital kiosks where you could, um, you know, listen to stories after they were recorded and you could, so you could listen to other people's stories, you record your own story, but it grew. So the booth technology just kind of all, you know, it only lasts so long. And so all of the you know, backend technology and the interface and everything just started to really age. And it was gonna be extremely expensive for us to keep that part of the project going. Yeah. And so we started turning that gallery space into these object stories exhibitions where we did a lot of the story recording with like in this case with indigenous youth and teens, um, <clears throat> we would, you know, record these stories like you would, um, you know, like any project you're doing or a podcast or something like that. Mm. Um, and then we'd have these stories available for, for visitors to listen to alongside objects that were in the cases in the gallery. And there'd be, you know, photographs of the storytellers. And it was, it, it was a really cool kind of twist or a turn for the project. But this project, I think, was <clears throat> kind of really cracked open this idea um, that you were talking about of, you know, kind of who gets to tell stories about objects in our collection, the kind of collaborations that can happen around interpretation. Um, so this, where we partnered with Indigenous youth, started this project where we then had an iPad in the Native American galleries and we had um, someone go to Alaska to um, a few uh, Yupik communities to record stories about objects we had in our Yupik collection and that sort of Arctic area uh, collection. And then we would have visitors like be able to listen to those in the galleries. So I think it was an early project that helped us really rethink how do we bring a lot of different voices and perspectives into the museum and think about those connections with objects in a much broader way. Um, and that just continued to kind of snowball after that. We did so many projects <laughs> after that, um, you know, in with all kinds of other collections and exhibitions um, that, you know, kind of did that work of really bringing in a lot of community voices or, you know, voices that again, just haven't been available for visitors in terms of, you know, making meaning of these objects. So it was, it was a really important, I think, early project in our work with object stories to kind of keep evolving that project. Yeah, and I think it also sort of brings up those um, notions of like credibility, I guess, of, of who, of voice in the museum and like who's able to, um, speak on certain things, you, you know, expertise and all of that comes up for me and just maybe even a little bit of authenticity too, not going to lie, that's, um, that all plays into it for me. So seeing that happen um, sort of early in object stories, I would say was like really cool too. Um, again, just innovative on all fronts and like a real first. 
that I had seen um, in my own studies, at least. Yeah, so, and on the one little thing to add is we had this amazing um, curator that we were partnering with at the time, uh, Dina Dart, who is no longer at the museum, is doing uh, awesome consulting work now um, around decolonizing practices. But she was someone who we partnered with and was just already like challenging these ideas of like, you know, and she wasn't, she's indigenous. So it's, you know, from her perspective, it was why do museums get to, you know, have the authority, have the voice? Why do we, you know, why do we have these objects? What is our responsibility to, you know, these communities where these objects are coming from and these tribes? Um, and so it was really great to partner with her, you know, with the education team um, and have a curator that was asking these questions. Cause that's just not that common that you have a curator that's like, yes, <laughs> let's go there. Let's do this instead mm -hmm. of, you know, the common response I think, which is like, why do we want to do this? Are you sure? Like, what about me and my knowledge and my, you know, expertise and my degrees and all that. So I think um, that was a really important part of sort of how this kind of got going. That is important. And it, I mean, and it doesn't take anything away from the expertise of academics. It's just, we can pass it all around, I feel like. So um, anyways, onward. Um, what were some of the design elements that um, you went into object stories to sort of ensure that the proper interpretive and storytelling power could be uh, transferred among participants in the project? Yeah, um, you know, I think originally we really started with a lot of like, there was just a lot of, a lot of technology, a lot of like, it was just very design heavy, I think, um, you know, the, the branding of it and, you know, and I think that was good because it gave the project kind of, you know, I don't know, like a, a stake in the ground, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but I really liked when it just continued on and the main element that stuck was just the storytelling so it didn't matter whether you were recording the story on your phone out you know out in a park somewhere um you know we did a lot of object stories um storytelling recording and projects that were you know out in the community you know i went out and recorded you know, with a bicycle exhibition, I went out to all these bike shops and we're talking, you know, was talking with all these individuals who are like experts at designing and making craft made bikes and all that across Portland. Um, you know, we went out, we did podcasts with youth. We worked with refugee communities um, here in Portland around exhibitions that related to that. Um, <clears throat> we had like storytelling um, like a trailer outside <laughs> during part, you know, for programs. Um, so the, the design elements, I think the successful part of it is that we just kind of like let it go and just allowed anything to kind of anything and everything to happen. And I think that is what brought the storytelling power to the core of the project is not saying, oh, well, it has to be in a, re in our recording booth at the museum, or it has to be, you know, HD video, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was just like, you got a tape recorder? Great. <laughs> like, if that's what is going to make this, you know, these participants comfortable recording these stories and really working with the museum, that was kind of the, you know, I, I would call it a design element that really was significant as we continue to develop this project. And I think it became more powerful because we let go of some of the, like, technology heavy stuff and kind of the branding and design elements and just went with you know, kind of anything goes, which was cool. Yeah, that's that's also really cool just because I think it's especially relevant now. Um, I haven't seen this much flexibility in storytelling, um, typically not until COVID since we've like had to. 
So I don't know. I don't just the absence of like that strict methodology or like narrative that you're going with, with this project in particular, I think is really innovative and cool. Also, um, shoot, where was I? I don't want to get you off track anymore. Okay. So um, in thinking about this sort of design of object stories and that display of generated, public generated content rather, um, you mentioned this already um, with your community partners, but how has Pam in particular worked with community partners to challenge their assumptions about decision-making in museums? Yeah, I mean, so that was, I think a lot of the core um, work that I think came out of this project was this idea that we could increasingly, you know, it, it's really interesting because there's a spectrum, I think, of like, you know, community participation, community ownership over or, or in the work that we do with museums. And I think Object Stories has kind of, you know, kind of made its way across that spectrum from, you know, uh, um, starting out as a much more museum-centered museum, you know, kind of controlled project in a certain sense, and then making its way across the spectrum to, I hope, to, I, I think one of our goals was, and one of the reasons I think the project kind of, you know, um, didn't end, but I think the, the object story's name kind of ended. And then it kind of, all these, <clears throat> all these sort of capacities and skills and, and like deeper learnings made its way into other areas of, you know, the collection galleries, exhibitions, you know, the thinking process around how, you know, the museum would plan and work with communities on in different ways. But the big thing, you know, was this project just kept getting more and more community centered, I think, in so many different ways. We're towards the end <clears throat> with a lot of the like last sort of official object stories exhibitions. It was sort of just really open, like working with, you know, we ha had a, uh, an exhibition that worked with a collective of deaf artists. And it was just this very committed and invested process in what they wanted to see this exhibition be. What were the stories that that organization and that group of individuals wanted to tell that hadn't been told? What, you know, how could they utilize the space in the museum to really you know, understand how visitors could learn about, you know, um, deaf artists in Portland and um, and just more of that kind of experience of being deaf. And there, it was an incredible exhibition with interactive artworks and storytelling and and some of your traditional object stories, objects on view. Um, but the but the projects kept getting much more community created and community centered. And so I think one of the big things that kind of left object stories as a key learning was, you know, that you can really hand over a lot of decision-making and authority to, you know, community partners and groups. Um, and, and then it just comes out with something more powerful and more meaningful. And you used the word kind of authentic earlier, and I, I hesitate to use that word sometimes, but I think it, but I do think it comes out with something a little bit more authentic. Um, and I think that is a really important um, kind of muscle for museums to grow more of these days is just letting go and understanding that like you can trust community members um, and community groups to really do a lot of the meaning making and storytelling and creation um, that museums have often done themselves without ever inviting others to sort of get involved. So it's just time to change that, I think. Yeah, I think your mention about trust is the most important and I think that's really what object stories brought to the table because I mean, like you said, it, it you can. And 
especially when you're talking about things like interpretation and meaning making, you can trust people to read just as deeply or as not into the same objects that you would um, or that anybody would on a personal level. It just may not be whatever is on the label, so to speak. And um, I, I wanted to ask you about like evaluation of success and things like that, because I think a lot of these, um, these projects really don't have a defined, um, I don't know, as they don't have a defined success rate as far as how people can interpret objects and make meaning from them and then what that meaning would be, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, I mean, we had, we had worked on trying to evaluate in kind of traditional ways early on, and nothing really, nothing really told us anything that we want that, like, it never told us what we kind of wanted to know, uh, especially kind of more quantitative types of evaluation. Right. Um, we did like, you know, we did like textual analysis of stories and we, you know, we did all, we went down the rabbit hole in so many different ways and I think exhausted a lot of resources. And then we finally got to a moment where it's like, you know, like, it's just good if we feel like the partners that we're working with and the community members that are a part of it feel like it's good. Right. As long as they like it. And as long as they're able to participate, I feel like that's, and they continue to do so, I would say. That's a loose um, success, I would count. Um, did you encounter any challenges with the Object Stories project in terms of museums or planning? Yeah, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, <laughs> we have um, that's a whole, so yeah. That is a whole nother conversation. I'm always willing to have that conversation. Yeah, oh my gosh, all the time. Um, all the time, I think. And whenever you're sort of um, just challenging an institution that's done things one way for, well, gosh, 115 years in this case, um, and, 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 and you know, it doesn't matter whether it's 50 years or, or longer than that, museums kind of have their way of doing things. Right. You're going to run into challenges, but also like, you know, we didn't have the resources. And, and this is the case with, you know, education, you know, and, and community, you know, outreach at museums, you know, kind of everywhere. It isn't sort of the number one priority of museums. And you kind of referred to this too um, earlier. And I think, so it doesn't get the, the staffing and the budget resources that kind of, you know, it need, that projects like this need object stories, like really, it's amazing what we were able to accomplish with, you know, without kind of, you know, the budgets that we were even seeing other museums get for, for you know, digital projects like this or storytelling mm -hmm. projects. So um, I think that led to like, it just being really scrappy. And then we would just run into a lot of like, early on, we ran into tons of technology problems, just like, that's a whole hour conversation there. <laughs> but then in the end, and you asked about kind of accessible visitor experience, um, we were really working on accessibility. And I think also, like I hesitate to use these words because I think it really means something completely different than accessibility, but disability justice. Mm. How can we really be working with deaf and disabled community members um, on how to make these experiences like available for anyone to come in and use the, you know, and 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 engage with the, this meaning, with the storytelling. And that was really a challenge given our restrictions on space, 
you know, how to, you know, move about the space and get in and out of the space. Um, but then just technology. And we worked with so many different, you know, individuals on, you know, making these exhibitions more accessible. But in the end, we would, you know, have a couple successes here and then we'd fail a couple times in different areas. And um, I just felt like it was something we could have pushed more. Um, so yeah, but lots of challenges along the way, which I think made it exciting, but also <laughs> exhausting at times. <laughs> For sure, for sure. I think that like a lot of a lot of that comes with just our notion of storytelling in general and like how do we make sure that they're accessible not only for participants but for those like receiving content. It's so that twofold, uh, I guess the the double bridge you've got across with that would have been really challenging. I was thinking about that a lot actually because we're not just making content accessible to like viewers or visitors, but for people to come in like do this. So um, yeah, that was, that's good. <laughs> um, what pieces of advice would you offer um, to institutions wanting to engage in this more polyvocal way of delivering content um, or this approach to storytelling? Uh, how could they kind of get started and get off of the ground with it? What do you say? Yeah, I, my number one piece of advice is just, you know, go for it and don't wait for, you know, I think with projects like this, especially at a museum that's never done something like this before, and I would say this is probably the case with object stories, it feels like you can only start when you have the idea perfect and you have the look perfect and you know exactly like who's gonna tell stories and what it's gonna sound like and what it's gonna be like and what the impact is gonna be and how your evaluation is gonna be done and how many grants do you have to support it. And I think if you if museums wait for that, then they're like missing the boat. I think, you know, museums have to just dive in, uh, you know, like like I said, you know, be scrappy, bring, the, bring storytelling like this anywhere and everywhere you can, collection galleries, for any, you know, historic houses and, you know, science museums and, you know, everything. People are hungry to tell their stories and, and I think, store and listen to stories. People love to sort of hear each other's stories and it's a very human connection. And so my advice is just, you know, go for it. Like, <laughs> you know, if anyone's staff at a museum and, you know, don't wait for permission, just grab your, you know, iPhone, go out and record some stories related to a project you're working on and just start sharing them with people and seeing where it can go. Cause I think that's just an important part of, you know, again, kind of cracking open museums to much more community involvement, meaning making and, you know, kind of storytelling. Wow, that is crazy that you mentioned that. Um, I've been, I don't know, I've just been hearing that a lot, like lately. I would honestly say within the last six months, like people are like, just stop waiting for everything to line up perfectly in a row, like just get started you know, you'll figure out the rest later. And I'm like, are you guys sure? And they're sure, so. <laughs> so that's- Yeah, cool. well, you know, it's, a, it's also another long conversation, but museums are obviously stuck in this kind of perfectionism culture and we got to get rid of that. We've got to try something and it fails. We say, woohoo, and you know, we're like celebrate that and like, you know, and, and learn from it and grow and move forward. Um, I think as long as we have the right, you know, grounding the right core values in that work. You know, I, I wouldn't recommend anyone do a project and fail and it harms someone or harms a community. I do not recommend that. But I think, you know, again, if we've got the right 
you know, values in the work we're doing. We're really community centered. We're really human centered and we go out and it's about that stuff. You know, that's where I just say, we, you know, go for it, step on the gas, you know, and kind of make it happen. And even sometimes, and, you know, if we ask for, what is it, um, the expression, ask for forgiveness, not permission. Exactly. Um, sometimes I think that's just a great way to go about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially in, in cases like this, where it's not the status quo as of yet yeah. to do so. And yeah, I see that a lot now with UX designers where they're encouraging more of a, uh, like a, like shoot for the stars as much as you can sort of like get all of your crazy ideals out and like encourage a little bit of failure to, you know, turn bad ideas into good ones. And so that's really interesting. But yes, I think that's all I have for you today. And I really wanted to just say thank you for speaking with me this morning and getting my assignment done with me. I feel like I cheated a little bit because you gave me a lot of stuff. So, <laughs> well, it was great speaking with you. Thanks for reaching out about uh, object stories. And um, yeah, good luck with everything. Yes, this is something I'm heavily invested in and I've been forcing everyone to look at that I speak with. So. They hate me, but they love object stories. And that's important. <laughs> um, all right. Thank you so much, Mike. Again, um, I'm going to stop recording now.